This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And one of our favorite things to talk about is the rule of law. And we tell stories in our rule of law series about what happens when the rule of law is either present or absent in our lives. And it's an easy thing to take for granted, folks. And today's story is from Brian House. Brian is an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, which is generally considered to be a progressive organization. And so many folks were confused when they defended the constitutional rights of an organization that isn't one. Here's Brian. So this case is National Rifle Association versus Cuomo. It's a retaliation case. And so, you know, the basic legal argument is that the New York state government was retaliating against the NRA because of the NRA's protected expression and viewpoint, and in particular, the NRA's gun promotion advocacy. The specifics of the case are that the uh, New York Department of Financial Services issued a regulatory guidance to all the entities that are regulated by the Department of Financial Services. And those are you know, primarily banks, insurance companies, stuff like that. And the guidance stated something like, you should be cautious about the risks, including the reputational risks of associating with the NRA or other gun promotion groups. And shortly after that guidance was issued, the Department of Financial Services actually entered into two consent agreements, which are kind of like legal agreements not to continue a prosecution as long as certain conditions are met, with two, I believe they were insurance providers that provided certain affinity insurance programs in connection with the NRA. And those consent agreements basically said, you're not going to do any more business with the NRA, period, and they levied a bunch of fines and stuff like that. And so a number of other insurance providers, you know, the NRA alleged at least, that a number of other insurance providers, seeing this guidance and seeing the consent orders that were entered against these insurance companies basically got the message that any sort of association with the NRA, you would get the full force of the New York financial regulatory apparatus coming down on you. And the NRA alleged that they basically couldn't get insurance programs and their access to banking services was being jeopardized because all the financial entities in New York State, which is to say most of the financial entities in the country, were getting this message from the state government that any sort of interaction with the NRA was prohibited, whether it was legal or not. So the NRA was basically saying that the New York State government was putting this message out into the water that associating with gun promotion groups and I think the, the guidance that the Department of Financial Services issued here was particularly telling because it didn't say, you know, associating with the NRA and providing illegal insurance agreements, of course, is prohibited. And if you shouldn't engage in these kinds of actions that were subject to the regulatory authority of the Department of Financial Services, they were just saying, if you associate with gun promotion groups, we're going to take a very close look at your businesses. And there's really no reason why the financial services regulator should care about what the advocacy is that insurance providers are, are cooperating with. But when we were filing the amicus brief, there was nothing that really connected that guidance to any law that the Department of Financial Services was directly implementing, right? And the guidance itself just sort of says, you know, be careful about the risks, including the reputational risks of associating with these entities. But it's totally unclear to me what reputational risks have to do with the Department of Financial Services. It really just sounds like they're saying, we really don't like this group and we want you to know that. And we want you to know that in the context of our enforcement decisions. 
it's one thing for Governor Cuomo to come out there and say, I hate the NRA. It's acknowledged that public, you know, politicians identify groups that they don't like and they condemn them. And, you know, that's generally considered acceptable, although sometimes it can be morally totally abhorrent. But when the context of that statement strongly suggests that the politician or the regulator, or the government official will use their enforcement discretion to punish the person they condemn or anybody who associates with the person they condemn, that's when there are First Amendment retaliation concerns. And of course, you know, it's no secret that Governor Cuomo hates the NRA and, you know, has gone on Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms and said, you know, basically, we're going to try to bankrupt the NRA. And so, you know, we said that at least on the facts as alleged by the NRA in their complaint, they raised a serious concern about whether or not the New York state government was trying to retaliate against them because of their expressive advocacy. And so they said, look, there's at least a question here about whether or not New York's trying to inappropriately leverage its regulatory authority to stamp out viewpoints that it doesn't like, in particular gun promotion advocacy. Now, I should say here that, you know, the ACLU disagrees very strongly with the NRA, and I disagree very strongly with the NRA over its, you know, gun promotion advocacy. I, I think it's abhorrent. But it is constitutionally protected expression, just like the ACLU's expression is constitutionally protected, just like expression by socialists or communists is constitutionally protected, or advocacy by Planned Parenthood is constitutionally protected. And if the New York state government is claiming the power to basically shut down advocacy organizations by choking off their ability to associate with essential banking and insurance companies, then there's nothing to prevent, you know, the governor of Alabama from making it impossible for the ACLU of Alabama to operate. You know, what we like to say at the ACLU is, is First Amendment rights are indivisible. And if you take First Amendment rights away from your enemy today, they're going to be, that's going to be used as a justification to take those same rights away from you tomorrow. And so what you want are, are good rules that protect the rights of everybody. And that, you know, when people have constitutional rights that we don't parcel out constitutional rights just to the people we like or just to our friends, everybody deserves the protection of the Constitution. And the Constitution has to be enforced without specific regard to, you know, ideology or politics. Constitutional rights are sacrosanct. And so, you know, that's why at the ACLU, for 100 years, we've been sticking up for the First Amendment rights of people with whom we profoundly disagree, people we condemn, because we recognize that at the end of the day, the Constitution is meant to protect all of us. And so we felt it was very important to say that, you know, if the evidence bears out that this is what the New York state government was doing, that that would be a First Amendment violation. And so we said the court had to at least let that go into discovery for the NRA to investigate whether or not that was in fact what the New York state government was doing. And you've been listening to Brian House of the ACLU, and we love telling stories like this because it matters. And these are stories about our free expression. And what I loved about the ACLU is it, in the end, is defending all of our rights to express ourselves and organize as we see fit without harassment or retaliation by the very people we pay to serve and protect us. The story of the NRA versus Cuomo. By the way, it's an ongoing dispute And a great job, as always, by Alex, and a special thanks to Brian House for telling that story. Our Rule of Law series, the NRA versus Cuomo, here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and up next, we have the story of Lauren Hamill. She's 24 years old and works as a computer engineer here in Mississippi. And we're broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, a beautiful small town about an hour south of Memphis. Here is Lauren with her story. So I was born with cerebral palsy, and that is a type of brain damage that can either occur in the womb during birth or up to, I believe, two years after birth. And there are several different kinds. My specific kind is spastic diplasia. So spastic just means that my muscles are constantly firing all the time, so my body is really tight. And um, it affects my legs more than my arms and my right side more than my left side. Uh, I don't have a very severe case. I do need equipment to get around, but it's definitely not as severe as some other people's are because I can still barely be pretty independent. I don't remember it ever being a big issue in my head. I think as I got older and as I saw especially how the adults interacted with me, which then taught the kids to interact with me in that way, that's what was the biggest issue. I don't think it was, because whenever your kids, they think the walker's cool more than anything versus like, what's wrong with you? More so as I got older, especially into like upper grade school, middle school, high school, that's when it would become an issue. Teachers would ignore me. And I know that it wasn't on purpose and I know that it's just because they're uncomfortable and they don't know how to interact with me, but Teachers would full on ignore me, and I had a, it sounds bad, but I started to not even, I wouldn't say that I didn't care, but I guess I didn't care enough to actually try and change it. Because once I got to high school and I would talk to my mom or my sister about how I was being treated, they're like, why are you accepting this treatment? And I'm just like, it just is the way it is. And I didn't view it as something that I could change. And I think that it, it has a lot to do with probably how I view myself today of just, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to bring up anything that might be extra work because I, I guess as, as a kid, or I guess in my formative years growing up, I would, I felt like a burden to most people because they would either ignore me or whenever I did need extra help, it would be some big to do. And it just didn't seem worth it to confront people at that point. When I was in grade school, it was always mandatory that we all participated in PE. And in a specific PE class, I think we were playing mat ball. I know that, or I figured out after class that the PE teacher told all of the kids on the other team that I wasn't on that they couldn't get me out. Which doesn't seem like a big thing to adults, but as a kid, when like you want to win the game and you don't have the girl on your team who can't get out, it just... I know that what they were trying to do was trying to include me and trying to, I, I know that they were, it was in their best, like they, they didn't mean any harm by it, but all they're doing is segregating me even more. 
by telling me, we're going to include her, but she's not going to follow all the rules. I didn't know it during the class, and I thought it was weird because I'm like, I obviously can't run very fast. And I thought maybe it was just kids being kids, and we're like, we'll let her make it to, because I think there were bases in the game. They're like, we'll let her get to first base or something. But then afterwards, it, it made me really angry because you want me to be included. You want me to form all these relationships, but you put so many conditions on them, and I wasn't even aware of any of the conditions. When I was younger, I lived really close to the primary school building, only about two blocks, and I told my mom I wanted to try and walk home on my own, and she was comfortable with it. Uh, it's only two blocks, and we had neighbors and everything. I don't even know if she was home. I mean, my sister was going to be home anyways. Regardless, I think she told the principal and she told the teacher that this was what was going to happen, so they knew that I didn't need to be picked up or wait for anyone. And everyone was super supportive about it, except for the principal who followed me in her car all the way home. Like, as a kid, I didn't think much of it, but my mom was like, you literally stalked my child. Would you do that to anyone else's child? And I think that was the initial start of where my mom knew that she was going to have to fight <laughs> for even just equal treatment for me. But that's, some, that's a story that we bring up a fair amount, just because how creepy is it that a principal just stalked me all the way home in her car? <laughs> like, they didn't believe that I could do it. Growing up, I think I wanted to come off as it didn't bug me. Um, I've had several people tell me before that they don't even think of me as someone being disabled, which surface level, I get that and I can appreciate that. But then now as an adult who is more accepting of myself and my disability, I think that's discrediting a lot of the hard work I put in and a lot of the, I mean, like, I am disabled. It's one of, it's an identifier. It's who I am. So someone saying that, like, they don't view me as disabled, it just seems like it's kind of taking away from that. But I think, especially when I was younger, I was constantly being told what I was doing wrong and especially at physical therapy, both at a hospital level, because I would go on a weekly basis every Friday. I'd be pulled out of school, drive over to St. Louis, which is like a 45-minute trip just for an hour-long physical therapy appointment to be told everything I'm doing wrong. And one current theme that was always in every physical therapy session is I wasn't doing it, like, quote-unquote, right, whereas... With how my body functions, I'm never going to be able to do an exercise 100% correctly. And that would, they would always tell me what I needed to improve on. And yet again, it's people, able-bodied people coming from a place of love and wanting to help. But all it does to a child is hearing, you're trying, but you're doing everything wrong. Since I'm walking with crutches now, I have all of these things going through my head. 
of my knees are knocking together, my toes are dragging, I have too much weight on my arms, my back is bowing, my stomach isn't tight. Even, I don't even know how many years later, I still can't get all of those things out of my head of what I, I think I'm doing wrong, even though I've made a huge milestone. And I think that it's affected me so much mentally that even whenever I have a win, I'm like, no, it's not really a win. Because it's, I think I constantly downgrade myself because of that. I lived on my own for about a year out in the DC area. And sometimes in my head, I'm like, how did I even make that work? How did I do it on my own? Getting out and living on my own helped a lot. But I also think that kind of reclaiming working out has helped not only my body image, but just overall confidence of I can do it. Not everything I do is wrong. And it's even if I have a constant support team telling me you're doing great, it's still something that I've had to work through in order to be able to tell myself that I'm doing great. And I think that, especially within the past couple months, it's been a lot better. I think for a while I didn't want to admit that I had body image issues, and I, I still do. For example, if I am walking and I'm going past a reflective surface, I won't look at myself because I don't like the way I look when I walk. It's weird because in my head, when I walk or when I do certain movements, in my head it looks normal. So then whenever I look in a reflective surface and I'm walking and I see that it's not what I count as normal, it just kind of sends me into a spiral. So I just kind of avoid doing that, which probably isn't healthy, but <laughs> I'm getting better at it. I do feel a lot a lot better about my body image issues. I think that a lot of it recently has also been stemming from Specifically, women's clothing is not made for people who are sitting down 24-7. So even though I... So one of my biggest issues was my stomach. I know that I'm not overweight, but when I sit all the time, it looks like I have more of a stomach than I really do. So when I stand up, I view that as good or okay. But when I'm sitting down 24-7, it just like, my clothes don't flatter me. It makes me look like I'm bigger than I actually am. So that's one of the main things for me is both how I look when I walk and my stomach, but also even how my hands move. Like if people ever go in for a high five or a handshake, like my body freaks out because I'm like, this is not going to look the way it normally does. And if I try to do it, then they're going to be like, what's going on? And it's just going to cause some whole thing. And I feel like I have to over-explain how my body moves to make people comfortable with me. And I think that's also a common theme of my life has been trying to make people comfortable with me instead of me just being comfortable with me. Like if I haven't met them in person yet and they might not know that I'm physically disabled, I will give them a heads up because I view it as rude if I were to just walk in in a walker and not give them a heads up that I'm disabled. Because I can always tell that whenever I first meet someone, like if they don't know that I'm disabled, they're like, there's a look on their face. And then I'm like, do I bring it up? Do I not? And it's just easier to kind of get rid of it initially. 
know, I'm trying to make myself more comfortable with making people uncomfortable, which is funny because in all other aspects of my life, I wouldn't say I enjoy making people uncomfortable, but it is kind of funny to just, like if it's not someone that I'm like going on a date with or meeting up with a friend that I haven't met in person yet or something like that, then I take that as a, like I need to prepare them. But anyone else when it comes to my disability, it is entertaining to make them uncomfortable. <laughs> I've come to terms with something's wrong. Because like, neurologically, something is wrong. And I don't view that as a bad thing. I just view it as I'm different, which it has taken me a while to get to that point. A large part of the reason why people I think culture as a whole lately doesn't want anyone to feel segregated or um, I guess segregated isn't the right word, but lesser than. And they think that by admitting that something is wrong, then that is immediately calling them lesser than, which that's also another big issue in the disabled community of, at least I, constantly, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously view myself as lesser than because I'm disabled. But even the term or the saying, you're such an inspiration, I hate it. <laughs> and not, it's, so it's weird because I've had this sort of, I don't hate it as much as I used to now. I've had sort of a revelation of I don't want people viewing me getting up and getting out of bed in the morning, having a job, being able to drive a car as an inspiration. But on the other hand, I also want them to see how hard my day-to-day -day life can be, how much extra effort I have to put in. So it's, it's kind of a give and take. So I don't hate the, you're such an inspiration. I don't hate it as much as I used to, but there is a fine line, at least for me, between don't make everything I do some miraculous thing, but also I deal with a lot of extra stuff in my day to day and I want people to see that and respect that. Um, so I have run into a lot of situations where things aren't accessible and nine times out of 10, like even though ADA, which is the American Disabilities Act, was passed, what, 30 years ago, I think, this year. Uh, people think that all of the accessibility work is done. It's far from it. So a lot of times in people's houses, I know that things are not gonna be accessible because it's not built for me, it's built for them, and I'm comfortable with that, and I've kind of made my peace with that. Um, and in terms of asking for help with, like, if I can't get into a bathroom and I need someone's help. I don't have an issue with that anymore because it's been a constant part of my life. And I think that my boundaries when it comes to, like specifically for a bathroom example, I don't have an issue with either being carried into the bathroom or some things I can kind of draw a line of like, if they have to help me, quite frankly, pull up my pants, I'm not gonna, it doesn't make me uncomfortable that much anymore. I just view that as they're helping me 
So specifically for bathroom examples, that's a huge issue. Like I did not drink coffee this morning because I didn't want to have to go to the bathroom in a place where I didn't know if it was accessible. And those are the kinds of things that run through my mind every day of like, after I work out, do I need to drink water? Yes. But am I going to drink water until I get home? No, because I don't want to have to go to the bathroom in a place that is not accessible. Or I don't want to have to hold it for so long that I'm afraid that I won't be able to make it to the bathroom once I get in. Being a young woman with a physical disability, I think in some ways it kind of weeds out all the people that you know aren't in your life for the best interest. But it also stunts a lot of relationships from even starting. Because I think people, especially people in their 20s, they're most likely not going to approach someone with a disability and try and form a connection with them. I think that it's, it's been a difficult thing to kind of grow up with. Because like I, like I said, I've been ignored and I think that still happens now. And I don't think it's conscious. I think that it just, they're uncomfortable with this so they avoid me. But in a time in my life when I'm supposed to be making all these lasting connections in college and meeting all these new people, it kind of stunts it and it's a little more solitary than I would hope for it to be. And in terms of how I would like to be treated as a 24-year-old disabled woman, I feel like there are lots of caveats with that because like, I don't want to be viewed as an inspiration, but I want them to take into account how much work goes in. It's It sounds like a cliche, but I just want to be treated like everyone else. Like if you would approach someone and compliment their shoes, why can't you do the same to me? I think that there is so much extra mental effort that goes into how should I communicate with someone who's disabled. Just communicate with them any other way that you would with any other able-bodied person. I haven't dated a lot. I, I never dated anyone in high school. I didn't really talk to most people outside of my friend group in high school. When I started dating in college, I think that I, I would take the attention of anyone who would give it to me because no one has ever viewed me as anything more than a friend. And if someone wanted to date me, it didn't matter how they treated me or if we even worked well in a relationship together. It, the simple fact that they were giving me attention was good enough for me and I stayed in crappy relationships because of it. I think a couple months ago I went on a first date and it was great. And then he didn't talk to me at all afterwards. And the only thing I can think of is how I acted around him didn't change, but the fact that he saw me walk and saw me in, with my equipment and whatnot, it might, it, I mean, it could have been any other things. Could have just been something going on in his life, but the fact that it goes from great conversations for like two weeks prior, great first date, and then nothing, 
it's hard to not have that affect you mentally and emotionally. And then I just kind of, I go through waves of like, I can do this. I'm not going to care what anyone thinks. And then you have something like that happen. And I'm just like, I don't want to put effort into people who are just going to like run away. And then even, I feel like most people nowadays, you don't just meet someone at a coffee shop. Like you're on a dating app. It happens. And I have to consciously pick out pictures where there's a wheelchair in it so that people know that I'm disabled. Because yet again, I feel like it's rude if I show up and I can't walk and I haven't told them that. Like I I try and put myself in their shoes, but it's kind of hard because I have a lot of different viewpoints and a lot of different experiences because of my disability for my entire life. And I wouldn't view it as some issue if a guy I was talking to showed up and he couldn't walk and to be like, okay, cool. But I think that that's also coming from a very disabled point of view. Whereas most people don't have any disabled person close in their life. And if they do, then I definitely hear about it. They're like, oh, my cousin has CP or my uncle is disabled and in a wheelchair. And I'm like, I don't know what that has to do with me, but thanks for the information. <laughs> I feel like it's just a constant disclaimer I have to put out there. I'm definitely still working through fully accepting myself. I think when I was younger, I liked to come off that I did 100% accept myself. So the fact that people close to my life now see that I don't 100% accept myself, it's shocking to them sometimes. Um, it's... I think it's a really hard thing to be able to 100% accept yourself even when you don't have a disability. I don't want to keep blaming it all on like society things, but I think in a world where disabled individuals are constantly an afterthought, it kind of makes it a little difficult for me to have the self-esteem to fight for the fact that we deserve equal entry into all buildings or also I think that there there are lots of books that help you work through a lot of mental issues that most people have but I think that there's a whole other psychology of being disabled and all of the mental uh, I guess kind of anguish that comes with that there aren't many books on that and there aren't many books on like even helping parents with children with disabilities of how do I help them without babying them? And then how, as a disabled individual, do you transition into adulthood and become an adult that's as independent as you can be? It's just, it's a fine line between trying to juggle all of these things, at least for me. Where do I accept that I need help on certain things and where should I be confident that I can do this on my own? I've talked to my family about how like, I wanna do certain things. Like a couple of years ago, I walked a 2K and we had to figure out that I needed to start a little bit earlier. So I ended on time with everyone else, but we made it work, we made it happen. And at least that experience was, was better than the kindergarten experience. <laughs> my mom. I mean, she, she has always been there for me. She's always fought for me. 
And whenever I am faced with how should I react in this situation, I think about how would my mom advocate for me? Because she, not only did she advocate for me, she taught me how to advocate for myself, which is why I think that I'm a lot more comfortable as an adult now asking for what I need because she's, she's like, I'm here for you. I'm here to advocate for you, but I'm not going to be here forever. So you need to learn how to advocate for yourself. So it was definitely supportive, but also teaching me how to ask for what I need and what I want. Because especially for a lot of parents with disabilities, they go the opposite way and they baby their children way past the point that it needs to be. And it's just not healthy. So when it came to figuring out how I was going to drive on my own, we weren't sure if hand controls were the right decision. Ultimately, it was up to me, and I think I did make the right decision. But in terms of whether or not I needed um, a lift to get in and out of a car or whether or not I could feasibly get my equipment in and out of the car, um, I had to figure out what was best for me. Our van started to stop working. Like the door wouldn't work, the automatic door, so then we couldn't really use the lift. So then I was like, do I want to get another van or do I want to get a car? So that kind of made the decision for me. I got a car, I got hand controls, and then it came to getting my equipment in and out of my car. And it could have been as simple as my mom being like, okay, I'll drive you to high school every day. I will we'll figure out a way to make college work, but she made me go outside and struggle for like a half an hour to figure out how are you gonna get the walker in and out of your car? Is it the walker or the wheelchair? I can't make these decisions for you. And it was really hard, but now I do it on a day-to-day basis. And I think it's just the initial, like especially as a kid, you're like, but you're my parent, like you're supposed to help me with everything. But there was a lot of anger going through my head. And I'm the type of person where when I get angry, I, I, I want to cry. So I was like on the verge of tears in my car and I'm just, it wasn't even anger at my mother, it was angry at, I've had several moments over the years where, why me? Why do I have to deal with all this? And I think that's where it was coming from because starting college is scary enough for anyone, let alone trying to figure out how I'm going to make it to class on time when I have to drive from building to building because I can't walk that far across campus. But then, I mean, after I figured it out, it's just a huge sigh of relief because then I've proved to myself that I can be independent. And that's a great feeling. I haven't had a why me moment in a really long time. I think I've more so accepted it and I don't need a reasoning as to why I am this way. I I choose to view the positives now of I've met so many people and had so many relationships with people that if I didn't have this disability, I never would have. I make a great engineer because I have to think out of the box 24 seven. I try to remind myself of all of the, the positives that have come out of this disability instead of just wallowing in self pity because that's not gonna get me anywhere. And what a story by Lauren Hamill. 
And excellent work, as always, by faith on that story, bringing it to us. And a couple of things come to mind in that last segment. I think it's always hard to accept yourself 100%, even if you don't have a disability. I've had anger, and I had to ask myself, why me, a lot. But then we hear just a little bit later, a little bit something different. I'm proud I could be independent. It's a great feeling. I haven't had a why me moment in a long, long time. I think of the positives that have come from this disability rather than wallow in self-pity because that's not going to get me anywhere. A remarkable voice, a remarkable story, Lauren Hamill's story, here on Our American Stories. And you're listening to the late Vince Lombardi, and we celebrate great American iconic figures, and there was no bigger one in the mid to late 20th century than Vince Lombardi. He affected everything, and we love talking to great writers, and we're going to talk right now with David Moranis, who wrote the book on Vince Lombardi, When Pride Still Mattered. Go to Amazon, pick it up. You will not put it down. It tells the story, not just about a man, but a place and a time. David's the associate editor of the Washington Post. His latest book is Once in a Great City, a Detroit story about 1963, a time and a place and a great American city. And David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Let's start in the beginning. Vince Lombardi's dad. What did he <laughs> What did he do for a living? And describe the world. Oh man. That young Vince, Vince Lombardi's grew up in. father here, he was a butcher. The family lived uh, in Sheepshead Bay uh, in Brooklyn. Harry would commute over to the Lower West Side of Manhattan where he had a butcher shop. One of his nicknames was Old 5x5, five five, which described about how he looked. He was short and squat and very strong and sort of uh, inculcated into his sons that there was no such thing as pain. Uh, he was tattooed, uh, you know, before his time. I guess, you know, he'd fit in with the modern-day athlete in that sense. Uh, but my favorite tattoos were on his knuckles. On one uh, hand, his knuckles spelled W-O-R-K, work. And on the other hand, the knuckles spelled play, P-L-A-Y. And that, too, sort of reflected some part of his son's mythology. Indeed. And, and, and here's a quote from you. The trinity of Vince Lombardi's early life was religion, family, and sports. It would be true for his entire life, wouldn't it be, David? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, uh, in various orders, but he was he was a very religious man, Catholic family, Italian Catholics. At one point, Vince himself thought he was going to be a priest, and he always sort of carried that inside him for the rest of his life. And he was trained at, at Fordham by the Jesuits, and the Jesuit philosophy was a very important part of his coaching philosophy. Um, but family was, was really everything. His mother's family were the Izzos. And she was one of 13 Izzo kids. And that, with you know, all kinds of uh, cousins and uncles and aunts, and, and that family really is the environment that Vince Lombardi grew up in. Something that he never was able to recreate with his own nuclear family, as we'll talk about, but but was able to recreate with his team, the Green Bay Packers. And by the way, 13 kids, people are listening like shocked, right, David? But Irish Catholic, Italian Catholic, yeah. and just lots of families, 8, 10, 12, was, well, it was pretty normal, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, it was not out of the ordinary for an Irish Catholic or, or Italian Catholic family of that era. Uh, the Izzos were pretty well renowned in Sheepshead Bay because there were there were so many of them, and they, they had uh, various uh, professions. Um, in that place, but no, it was not. It was not shocking that there would be thirteen of them. Now you wrote, "quote The church was not some distant institution to be visited once a week, but part of the rhythm of daily life." Talk about that. Vince Lombardi, as an adult, went to mass every morning when he lived. Uh, you know, wherever he lived, at, at Fordham as a student, uh, he was trained by the Jesuits. Um, then he was a, a teacher and coach at St. Cecilia High School in New Jersey, um, where he, his best friends were the, were the fathers there and the nuns. Um, when he was at Green Bay, uh, he went to Mass every morning at St. Willebrand's in Green Bay, which was a pretty heavily Catholic place. And, the, and finally, uh, I love this story, late, you know, late, his last move in his career was to Washington, D.C. He, of course, wanted to go to Mass every morning, but the Mass that he wanted to attend was held at something like nine nine thirty or ten and he wanted to get to work before then. So he literally knocked on the door of the priest and told him to move his mass up so that somebody could get to work. <laughs> that one didn't work. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't tell God what to do, but he could tell everybody else. That's right. In the end, there was a part of me that as I read your book, he, he almost wanted to submit to something higher than him. That was about the only place in his life where that was true. Yes. But I think that uh, people have various levels of commitment to faith and religion. And I think with Vince Lombardi, it was authentic and deep, and he did need that. Uh, He also, it should be said that he went to Mass every day because he knew he was a flawed human being. And he knew that he sometimes had anger management problems. Um, Not that he was violent, but just that he, he, except, you know, with his words, and he wanted to try to control that, and he regretted it. And that was one of the reasons he, he went to Mass, to sort of for penance in that sense. Now let me hit you with another quote, and uh, this is a Lombardi quote in your book. From the first contact on football fascinated me. Contact, controlled violence, a game where the mission was to hit someone harder, punish him, knees up, elbows out, challenge your body, mind, and spirit, exhaust yourself, and seek redemption through fatigue. Such were the rewards an altar boy found in his favorite game. David, suffering, pain, redemption. It sounds like football and religion had intertwined. Yeah, they certainly were with Vince Lombardi. Uh, There's one great 
uh, irony or paradox to that, which is that Lombardi was kind of a wimp. <laughs> he had a very low pain threshold himself. He had a much higher pain threshold for, for other people. <laughs> but, but um, you know, his, even the trainers would talk about how Lombardi would get sidelined with a hangnail. And at Fordham, he was often disabled with one injury or another. He, I mean, he was a tough human being. He had a strong spirit. But as I write, and I believe this is true with many coaches and politicians and leaders in general, they see their own weaknesses and understand them and try to eliminate them in others, which they can't eliminate in themselves. So that the whole notion of fatigue, though, and work, giving your hardest and leaving it all on the field is something that Lombardi did personally and that he truly believed in, the reward of that hard work, which is part of the Jesuit philosophy. And when we come back, more about the impact of that Jesuit philosophy on the life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, and we love to do deep dives on great books of the last 25 years. This is one of the best and about one of the great subjects. And David, people would never believe it, but once upon a time, New York City was a real college football power. We had Columbia and NYU, and then there was Fordham, where young Vince decided to go play football. Talk about the role of those Fordham Jesuits in the formation of Vince's character, and life. Well, I think that you can trace everything about Lombardi's coaching philosophy back to the Jesuits. The key one, in my mind, is the notion of freedom through discipline, which I think explains Lombardi better than anything else, and is a Jesuit notion, which is that only through the hard work and repetition and commitment that comprises discipline can you eventually develop the freedom um, in your life? Um, you know, for the Jesuits, it was free will. For Lombardi, um, if you transferred it to his football teams, it was that once they learned, they disciplined themselves through that hard work to understand what they were doing, it slowed the game down for them and made them um, have a leg up on all of their opponents. And that was the freedom that his hard work gave to his players. It's so true. I'm going to read again from the book. All the detailed preparations resulted not in a mass of confusing statistics and plans, but in the opposite, paring away the extraneous, reducing and refining it until all that was left was what was needed for that game against the team. Exactly your point there, David. Yeah, and I think that um, along with the Jesuits, the other um, major philosophy that affected Lombardi was from West Point, where he was an assistant coach under the great coach Red Blake, who really had that same philosophy of making things simple by being a good teacher. It doesn't mean that, that things are are dumbed down for, for uh, the players, but just that there's so much extraneous stuff that teachers put into something and their, the ability to, to make it understandable to every player 
um, and to simplify something until it has a more powerful effect is something he also learned from Red Blake. Indeed. In fact, you wrote, quote, in many ways, the philosophy at West Point was similar to the way of life that Lombardi had learned earlier at Fordham under the Jesuits. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it was a perfect uh, storm. You know, our, our leaders born or made, um, I think there's a combination of the two. But I think that, that the making of Vince Lombardi with the ingredients he already had uh, came from the Jesuits and, and West Point in a way that, that made him unique. Now, his first job out of Fordham, his first coaching job, was in a little hamlet in northern New Jersey called Englewood. I grew up not far from there. Uh-huh. And St. Cecilia's High School, I'm going to quote again from the book, when he took the job at Saints, Lombardi said later, his frame of mind was that he wanted to be a teacher more than a coach. And for some people who really knew him, and you did as you studied him, that was true all the way through, wasn't it? Oh, totally. Yes, he was, he was a teacher-coach. Everything that helped him with the Green Bay Packers was refined first at Little St. Cecilia. He, he taught a lot of different classes, including chemistry. And again, he, he what he tried to do was make it, he wouldn't go on in the coursework until every kid in the class understood it. Um, and he had a, that ability to make complicated things seem understandable, comprehensible. So that, you know, later when he first got to the Green Bay Packers, Bart Starr, the quarterback, spent one hour with Vince Lombardi and rushed to a telephone to call his wife to say that he'd never experienced anything like this and they were going to start winning because of the way that Lombardi, who was a lineman, by the way, could explain what it was like to be a quarterback. You know, this is extraordinary. We're going to play the clip from Bart Starr in one second. But what's interesting, when Lombardi, and we're just jumping ahead of the story, we'll return back to St. Cecilia's. When, when Lombardi gets to, to Green Bay, the team had been 1-10 the year before. 1-10. <laughs> so he's now meeting the players. He gives this pep talk. And within an hour, as you said, here's Bart Starr talking about that. I'll always remember our first meeting with him. It was dynamite. And uh, I called my wife, Cherry, and I said, Honey, we're going to begin to win. That's all <laughs> I said to her. Honey, we're going to begin to win. In his very first meeting, you could see how well prepared he was and then how he approached what he was teaching at that session that day. Uh, you, could, you could sense an outstanding teacher and uh, builder that he was, and that's exactly what we were. He just brought us right up quickly. It's extraordinary. Eight years he spent at St. Cecilia yeah. doing just that. Eight years, David. That really <clears throat> mattered, didn't it? In a couple of ways. One is the... The uh, that he was ready when he finally got his chance. He, you know, he'd already developed the skills that that were needed for for when he when he finally got his break. Secondly, in another way, all of that time, eight years at Saint Cecilia's, and then and then several other assistant coaching jobs. You know, twenty years basically in the in the wilderness before he got his break, all made it so that he had this enormous overriding will to succeed when he finally did get his chance. West Point is the next gig. Talk about this man, Red Blake, because we all need mentors in life, and sometimes we're just lucky enough to stumble on one. Well, Blake was a superior football coach. He had great organizational skills. He also was a terrific teacher. And his motto was, you have to pay the price, which was sort of a, 
you know, a continuation of the Jesuit motto of freedom through discipline and the notion that you get out of life what you put into it. And it was part of the learning tree for, for Vince Lombardi. And and what's interesting is this is back when West Point, and this is, again, hard to believe, was a national powerhouse in football, oh, championship teams. So. Yeah, they when, when Lombardi got there, they'd come through a couple of amazing seasons where they were the number one team in the country. One of the other threads of my book, however, is the fallacy of the innocent past, where you know, we're always longing for something golden in the past and and tend to romanticize it for that reason. There are many valid reasons to do that, but you can't look look at it through rose-colored glasses. So, you know, during Lombardi's time at West Point, there was a cheating scandal among among the uh football players. You know, human nature doesn't really change the the culture around it does, but but the temptations of life are, are there, you know, in every generation. And yep. so at West Point, it was, you know, a cheating scandal that almost brought Red Blake to his knees. They had an amazing recovery, but it was a very difficult couple of years. And there's an honor code there. So in a place yes. like West Point, it's even just, it's worse than big state university, a cheating scandal. Um, right. I mean, it, yes, it, it's sort of more uh, discombobulating that, that those young men would, would be involved in that. It wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time, though, that one of the academies had a scandal like that, and partly because of the pressures of the honor codes. You bet. And that they're young men in a very tough circumstance and that nothing right. changes there. One scene in the book really stood out for me, David. It was of Lombardi taking game film from the West Point game <laughs> and bringing it to New York City for yes. an important graduate who lived in the Waldorf Astoria. Who was that graduate? That was uh, General Douglas MacArthur, who by that time was back from his controversial uh, period as a as a gen- Army general, but still revered West Point. He'd once been the superintendent at West Point. He and Red Blake were very close. And so one of, of assistant coach Lombardi's assignments was to go down to um, New York and get the film developed and stop off at MacArthur's penthouse suite in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and show him the game films. Um, MacArthur was always following in great detail the starting lineups of the West po- of the Army football team, their schedule, um, their preseason drills. He wanted to know everything about every player on that team. And one of so Lombardi got them spent time with him, uh, showing him game film uh, during the seasons. That had to be a real learning uh, experience for him at a minimum. Lombardi and MacArthur, by the way, both believed, David, in the value of competitive sports to shape and mold men's character. Talk about that. Oh, definitely. Yeah, no, um, MacArthur was very much into the notion that, that, you know, mind and body uh, went together and that sports were essential to, to building character. Um, you know, that, that that's a debatable point. Um, some people argue that sports don't make character but reveal it. And, uh, you know, I think it's always an interesting uh, way to look at it. But, but for MacArthur, sports was, was really a central part of, of what he saw as the mission of West Point. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And I just can't get out of my head what that must have been like for a young coach Lombardi, an assistant coach, to bring game film to General Douglas MacArthur. I would have wet myself. I would have peed in my pants. 
when we come back, more of the life story of Vince Lombardi with one of the best writers in this country, author David Moranis. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to David Moranis, author of When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. And Vince's next job, he was the assistant coach for Wellington Mara's New York Giants. He's in the big leagues now, David. He was the offensive coach. And Tom Landry, who would go on to fame as a coach of the Dallas Cowboys, he was the assistant coach in charge of the defense. Talk about that. You could say that that was the best combination of of uh, assistant coaches in NFL history. So much so that the head coach, Jim Lee Howell, they used to joke that his only main assignment was to make sure the footballs had enough air in them. <laughs> and then he turned everything over to uh, Landry and Lombardi, who were um, yin and yang, uh, just opposites of personality and coaching styles. Um, L- Landry was cool, methodical, Almost, uh, almost an automaton in the way he wanted his players to to act, and the way he coached. And Lombardi was um, much more emotional, uh, much more uh, uh, you know high, high and low in terms of how he would deal with the players. Uh, just complete opposites. Indeed. And by the way, he had to learn something new. He had to adapt Lombardi. These were grown men. Guys like Charlie Connolly had served in war. Talk about how Lombardi adapted from teaching young people to teaching grown men. Well, you're right. Uh, You know, his first uh, training camp with the Giants, um, the the offensive players really didn't uh, take to him at first. Frank Gifford, uh, the great halfback, and Charlie Connolly, the old quarterback, they thought he was sort of amateurish and, you know, trying to sort of a rah-rah college guy. So it took him a while to adjust to the pro style. But that's a very important point about Lombardi, which many people don't quite understand. He has the reputation of sort of my way or the highway being inflexible. He wasn't like that at all, really. He was very disciplined and tough, but he was also a master psychologist who who would study his players and figure out how to get the best out of all of them and learn and change and adapt. And that's exactly what he started doing when he became an assistant coach at the Giants. And all teachers in the end have to do that because culture changes, people yep. change, and you just can't, te- te- you can't treat people as robots. They're people. That's exactly right. And that's why when people ask me whether Lombardi could succeed today, I say yes. Um, he he would he would learn how to get the best out of players today, just as he did in his era, and he would adapt to that without changing his fundamental philosophy. And the players would adapt to him because they realized that he had their interests at heart and that he would help them win. Indeed, let's talk about the professional football experience then, because it's not today. Baseball, boxing, even horse racing got more coverage in newspapers. Pay was poor. In your book, you talk about how players barely got paid for preseason games, and many teams had no compensation plans for injured players. 
But Lombardi was lucky to come into the league just as all of that was beginning to change, David, and it didn't hurt that he was in a big media market like New York. No, it didn't, and it didn't hurt that um, that the game had him as well. And it sort of was a nice uh, synergy between the rise of professional football and the rise of Vince Lombardi. So everything that he learned in New York by the time he got to Green Bay, football, the NFL was finally coming out from being a second-class sport to being the dominant sport that it would later become. And and the sport used Lombardi, and Lombardi used him in that rise. Indeed. And so he ends up in a little hamlet in the Midwest called Green Bay. And his poor wife, I mean, New York City, and Ala- it might as well have been Alaska that he was going to as far as his wife and family were concerned. We haven't talked much about this thing called the marriage. Yeah. And the wife had drinking problems. Uh, Vince wasn't exactly a model husband in terms of how he talked to his wife, treated his wife, and he was never there. Talk about that relationship and what the wife did, because she really tried to keep Vince in New York. Yeah, well, you know, it's a it's a difficult, it's a love story, but a very difficult and human and problematic one. Marie was from New Jersey. She loved the East Coast. She liked uh, the clothing stores in, in Manhattan and just the whole lifestyle there. And and for her to go to, to Little Green Bay was just a utter culture shock. There was a Broadway play that was made out of my book, and the character that steals the show in the play is Marie Lombardi, played by the great actress Judith Light. The scene of them driving west for the first time and rounding Chicago and then running into a snowstorm. It, it was amazing to see Judith Light portray Marie in that scene where she sees nothing but white ahead of her and and what that sort of represented to her. Vince Lombardi was much better at creating a sense of family out of his football team than he was out of his nuclear family. His wife had um, a paradoxical situation where she loved being Vince Lombardi's wife, and she grew to love football and and really understood him and the game by in the end quite well. And yet it was a very lonely experience because he, in a sense, was married to football as much as or more than her. And she did have a drinking problem, and um, there were several moments in their lives in Green Bay where things got pretty dicey. She was in the hospital once for for an overdose of uh, of drugs, you know, um, of pills. I'm sorry, not drugs. And, uh, of course, the relationship with Vince Jr. was equally difficult. Imagine being carrying that name and that bird. There's a book in that, David, The Sons of Great Men. Maybe, maybe you'll... Uh, yeah, it, I know, I, there really is, yep. There's a great scene in your book where Lombardi, the new coach, gives his first impassioned speech to the Green Bay team <laughs> that had just lost 10 of 11 games. He told them they were going to be the New York Yankees of football. He told them that he would relentlessly pursue victory and anyone who didn't like it was free to leave. After the speech, and I'm quoting from your book, there was silence. The room empties. Lombardi approaches veteran Max McGee. What did you think? Lombardi asked. Well, I'll tell you. You got their attention, coach, McGee replied. You know, I wasn't sure, Lombardi confided. Everybody could have just gotten up and walked out for all I knew. It showed a tremendous vulnerability in Lombardi and an honesty. And I think yes. that is what really came out of this book for me. What a human being he was. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can try to create uh, a myth- mythological creature as a saint, um, but it's the it's the frailty and humanity of someone who then goes on, despite all of that, to achieve 
uh, success that makes Lombardi the more interesting uh, character. And he did have those vulnerabilities and those uncertainties. And they drove him as much as, as his confidence that he was going to win. Indeed. And I love there's a video. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's Lombardi on a, on a, in front of a chalkboard, and he's outlining the sweep. Oh, yes. That's, that's uh, iconic. Yeah. It's like a physics class. It's so intricate, and yet he mastered, his team mastered this play, and it became, well, it became the iconic play of the great American football team known as the Green Bay Packers. I love that the story of the sweep as much as anything to describe Vince Lombardi because on, superficially, um, it seems simplistic. You know, the other teams would have all of these fancy plays, and, and, and the Packers had the power sweep the Green Bay sweep, and other teams knew it was coming. So why did it succeed? It's because Lombardi taught it so well and so thoroughly and allowed freedom in the discipline of that sweep so that every player involved in that sweep, whether they were a blocker or the runner, knew about 10 or 20 variables that they could use on the sweep depending on how the defense was reacting. And they understood it so well that they were one step ahead of the defense on that play. And that was the freedom through discipline of, of, of Lombardi's philosophy, exemplified by one play that seemed simple but actually was rendered simple in its complexity. And when we come back, more with David Moranis, his terrific book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. This is Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will get you our five best stories each week in audio form and in text. You can read it. You can listen to it. That's ouramericannetwork.org. More after these messages with David Moranis and the life of Vince Lombardi. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with author David Moranis and his book, When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi, and we love to cover these stories. This book was written almost two decades ago, but we cover the great iconic stories in this country and the writers who wrote the books, and for those who hadn't read this book, well, go to Amazon.com. It's still out there, folks, and you won't put it down if you read it, and David Lombardi had no room in the locker room for racism or in the city of Green Bay. Does that have anything to do with how he was treated as an Italian? He'd been called WAP, Guinea, Dago, and so many other bad names. He knew the sting of racism and racial prejudice. You know, it did certainly affect Lombardi. That, that, that's not to say that that was the only factor, because I think there are other Italians who were discriminated against or anybody, you can react one of two ways. You can then find somebody else to discriminate against yourself, yep. or you can take it as a learning lesson about, you know, that we're all uh, in the same boat. Lombardi took it that way um, in the best possible way. When he got to Green Bay, 
you know, I think there were three blacks in the whole town, and one was the shoeshine man at the Northland Hotel, and the other two were Packers. Uh, he brought the first wave of, of great black athletes to Green Bay, and one of the first things he did was go to all the taverns in Green Bay, or most of them, because there's so many, and overwhelming, you know, there's a tavern on every block. Right. But he said, if I hear that you're discriminating against any of my players, you're off limits for all of them. And that had a pretty profound effect. And that was the sort of thing he did throughout his career. When they had preseason games in the South, uh, the first instance they were in New Orleans and the black players had to sleep somewhere else, he said, we'll never allow this again. And he would put the whole team up together at a army base instead of having to deal with, this, with the Jim Crow South. Um, he was very strong on race. And all of his black players from the day... They first met him to the day he died, uh, revered him for that. Yeah, and the military, we all know this about the military. Long before there was integration talk, the first real cultural institution in America that brought the races together was the military, David. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it was too late. It happened after World War II, basically. But, but the military and sports, more than any other parts of American life, have become true meritocracies at least on the playing field or on the, the field of battle. They did a lot, both of those institutions, to, to break the racial barriers of this country. Let's talk about prayer. You said it was, quote, the essence of Lombardi's religious practice and the constant of his daily routine. Quote, his daily prayers were an effort to balance the tension between his will to succeed and his desire to be good. You know, it's quite something that he saw that in himself, he might have the appearance of not being the most self-reflective human being. So obsessed did he seem with with prevailing. But in fact, he did have that self-awareness, and it was the central part of his uh, faith, of his life of prayer, was to try to find the right balance. Even if he couldn't do it outside of the, the uh, church, he understood the problem that he was dealing with in his own frailty on that. And that was that was what he spent a lot of, you know, he didn't pray to win, he prayed to be a better person. And in your chapter, Trinity, his son talked about his dad, and I'm going to quote from the son, life was a struggle for my dad. He knew he wasn't perfect. He had a lot of habits that were far from perfect. His strengths were his weaknesses and vice versa. He fought it by taking that paradox to church it went back to the Jesuits always and the struggle between the shadow self and the real self, your humanity and your divinity. He saw that struggle clear, my dad, in concrete terms. Wow, what a wise son, David. Isn't that something? I know. I felt blessed when I started this biography that Vince Lombardi's son was not perpetuating a mythological sainted creature as a father but had a clear-eyed vision of him, and it wasn't, he didn't hate his father, he loved his father, but he knew his father's flaws. And he had suffered because of that himself and spent a lot of time thinking about it, so that by the time I approached this book, Vince Jr. was very open to letting an author sort of see the reality and the complexity and the paradox of, of his old man. And what father and son doesn't have this complicated relationship? And the honesty of this, the brutal honesty of it, was yeah. absolutely beautiful. Oh, I agree. I mean, every every father-son, mother-daughter relationship has some complexity to it of one degree or another. This one was 
a little more complex because of the father's fame and his obsession and the son's inability to break through until until you know it's almost too late but that level of comprehension of of Vince Jr of what his father was dealing with is quite extraordinary Lombardi would go on to win a world championship by beating his old team the New York Giants and he didn't just beat the Giants, David. He destroyed them. When the score was 37 to nothing, he finally started playing his subs, and Lombardi called that title game the biggest thrill of his life. Well, you know, he probably thought that he was going to be the coach of the New York Giants. That was, you know, he was a New York kid. That was, he liked, uh, he and Wellington Mara both went to Fordham in the same era. There are a lot of connections there. He, he didn't get the job, and then by the time he was might have gotten it he didn't want to leave again so beating the beating the new york giants i would say that first 37 to nothing game was probably the the most important of his career along with the last along with the ice bowl at the end yep there was this great celebration at the elks club in town (laughs) and everyone was there after this victory players too you wrote this about lombardi and the men he coached quote as despotic and unfeeling as he could sometimes seem on the practice field the coach had taught them how to win. He lifted their self-image. He challenged them to accomplish things that they had thought were beyond their reach. I want to play you a clip. It's of Jerry Kramer talking about coach. Oh, great. And, and, and this is a guy talking possibly, David, 20 to 30 years after this incident. Let's take a listen to Jerry Kramer. I jumped off sides one time in a scrimmage, and he got in my face, and he said, Mr. The concentration period of a college student is five minutes, high school is three minutes, kindergarten is 30 seconds. You don't even have that, so where's that put you? Put me checking my shoe shine. I go up in the locker room, sitting there, chin in my hand, elbow me, looking at the floor, thinking, I'm never going to play for this guy. He came in the door, came across the room, slapped me on the back of the neck, messed up my hair. He said, son, one of these days you're going to be the best guard in football. He turned around and walked away. And that started my motor. With that comment, he allowed me to think about being a great football player. And from that point on, I worked my tail off. I gave him everything I had. It made a profound impact on my life. And just listen to the emotion in that. That started my motor. It had a profound impact on my life. Don't we all wish we had somebody in our life like a Coach Lombardi who would push us beyond what we thought we could do? That that, uh, is incredibly uh, emotional for me because my father did the same thing to me at one point where I had no clue what I was doing in my life. I was 15 years old, and he introduced me to someone and said, this is my younger son, Dave. He's going to be the best writer of all of us. Um, you know, and so I know that what that what it means to have that motor turned on like that, and the key to Lombardi, which many coaches who think they're mini Lombardis don't understand, is that you have to have that balance. Yes, you can be tough, but you have to have the ability to know when to when to show the love to your to your players, and that you really you know it's it's about them. Um, and their ability to work together. Um, and Lombardi had that. There's some 
Lombardi wannabes who just see the tough part of it and don't see the love part of it. Yeah, they don't see the softness either or the vulnerability, and that's right. that's a considerable uh, loss for them. Final parting thoughts here. Once that Giants game wins, in my mind, the Super Bowls were afterthoughts. They were going to happen. He had achieved all he'd achieved. What if it, Was there something after it was all done that you, you thought, I should have put that in the book? I missed it. <laughs> Boy, that's a great question. I missed a couple of stories that I wished I'd gotten. One was about Lionel Aldridge, um, the defensive end, an African-American who was in love with and married a white woman, and there was a lot of pressure um, to prevent that from happening, believe it or not, in that era. You know, we still had that level of of racial bias, and Lombardi stood up for Aldridge and said, you know, we're human beings first, and don't feel any pressure from me about that. Seems obvious now, but I wish I'd had that story in my book, because it was one more level of Lombardi. I do have in the book the fact that um, his brother Harold was gay, and Lombardi was terrific on, on that issue, which still is not something that professional athletes can deal with in a particularly healthy way, even today, but Lombardi made it clear on all of his teams that if he found anybody discriminating against someone because of their sexual orientation, they were off the team. And as a Catholic, that had to be something. I mean, he was yep. actually practicing perfect Catholicism. He was loving on the gay player. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he was practicing. Your, I, I love the way you put that um, because there's so many different ways that people distort uh, uh, religion and, and Catholicism and 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 he was uh, applying the, 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 the fundamental love of, of, of what faith should be. And David, you did such a good job weaving in the Catholic nature of Vince Lombardi and the Catholicism that informed his entire life. And we've been talking to David Moranis, the book When Pride Still Mattered, A Life of Vince Lombardi. Go to Amazon.com and order it. It was written 20 years ago, but it's still one heck of a read. Vince Lombardi's story here on Our American Stories.